Whose job is it to provide for the poor? Today we're going to seek to answer that question from the scriptures. Is it the job of the government? Is it the job of the church? Is it the job of individuals who are the poor? What responsibility do they have? These are all important questions. As we've been looking at various topics under the broad heading of understanding the times, understanding the worldviews at work behind the political divide in the United States of America, there are big picture principles that we need to take with us as we consider these issues because make no doubt about it, there are worldviews, comprehensive thinking about humankind and the human condition, about sin and depravity, about finances and how finances are to be used, about government that underline all that we see that comes out at the political level. People act based on what they believe. And you have worldviews at work. One of the big picture principles that is at work in, in all of these different worldview issues is the question of what is wrong with us? What is, what is wrong with us? What, what is the problem of the human condition? What, what is the underlying issue that leads to crime, that leads to poverty? And what you will see as you look at the different worldviews at work in this political divide is that on the side of the progressive left, they do not believe in the depravity of man. They believe in the inherent goodness of people. People are good, and it is their environment that leads them to make bad choices. And so if you can just mold and craft the environment, then you will eliminate poverty. And so on the side of the progressive left, they promote the idea that there are basically philosopher kings. There are the elite. There are those who know what is best for humankind. We need to put those people in office. We need to give them power to take money in the form of taxes and then to redistribute it through multiple programs which will then craft environments that will lead to the alleviation of human suffering. But the problem with that is if you look at the at the Bible and the biblical worldview are people inherently good at heart? Are people good outside of God's grace and his mercy in their lives? Consider Titus chapter 1. 
Titus chapter 1 and verse 15 says this. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. What's that saying? There are those that are pure, those who are God's children, those who have saving faith in the Lord, those who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they have renewed minds and renewed consciences. But to those that are unpure, those that are lost, even their minds and consciences are defiled. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 19 regarding where murders come from, where thefts come from? They come from the heart. They come from the heart. In the book of Romans, it describes the human condition apart from God, and it says there are none who seek after God. So as we put biblical text on biblical text, it teaches us that the problem in the world is sin. It is not environment. And you know what? That's a a hopeful thing. That means that if you live in a less than hospitable environment, you are not a slave to do that which is wrong or evil. But you can stand out and you can fight for truth and you can do that which is right. Now, ways that you see on the progressive left that they promote this idea that the problem is, for instance, poverty. That's a big one. They say the problem is poverty. And and it's just this. Just Google sometime. What is the cause of crime? And you'll find all kinds of articles that says poverty is the cause of crime. Now think about that for just a minute. That is a grossly unbiblical statement. Is crime a sin? Okay, in, in the vast majority of instances, if somebody commits a crime against the laws of a nation, they are also sinning against God because most nations like ours have laws that say don't do things that God would also say are evil, like steal from people and murder people and batter people and all that kind of thing, right? And so in a general sense, committing a crime is going to be evil, And so when we ask the question, what is the cause of crime? Where did Jesus say that crimes come from? Did he say poverty? It's poverty. If you can just fix the poverty problem, you fix crime. No, it's a heart problem. People choose to commit crimes. And so when you read articles that say poverty is The cause of crime, they are coming from an absolutely ungodly worldview. Either that or they shouldn't be writing articles because they don't know 
what cause means. Okay? And then when you listen to them and you listen to those who call themselves preachers who promote these progressive ideas, what you do not hear them saying to their communities is young man, you who have joined a gang and who got caught with an illegal weapon and have been incarcerated, you made a choice to sin against God. And no matter how difficult your conditions are, and no matter how difficult the circumstances in which you were raised because you didn't have a father there and you didn't get a proper education and all these things, but no matter what, you had a choice and you chose to sin against God and you need to repent of that sin and you need to not blame anyone else for that sin and that's the best thing for you and you can move forward now with your life if you will change and you will follow the Lord. You do not hear that. What you hear is the fault is poverty. The fault is systemic racism in order to maintain white power. And the fault is police profiling, racial profiling, and that we have biased policing systems. And the fault is that we don't have enough welfare programs because if only he had been given more money and more opportunities, then he would have not committed this crime. You see, you just go down the list. You do not hear people on the left telling people to take responsibility for their own choices and that whenever they do that which is wrong, it is their fault. And that ties into another one of the big picture principles that I talked about last week, and that is those who are on the progressive left predominantly do not believe in objective morality. They're relativists. They don't believe in absolute truth. Truth is what you make it to be. So that's why that's where you get the idea that somebody who is biologically a male can actually identify as and ought to be protected by law and given special privileges by law. If man, they feel like a woman. And then they can and it must be protected by law that they can go into powerlifting competitions and blow away biological females. They can go into college track meets and break all of the records. It has to be protected by law that they can brutalize women because they are delusional and believe themselves to be something they absolutely are not. How do you come up with that idea? You cannot believe in objective truth. Truth is how you define it. I identify with whatever and it makes me that. Unless you want to identify as a minority when you're not. All right. And then they have to go through gymnastics to try and demonstrate why that's the case. Why it's okay for them to say, no, you white person, Elizabeth Warren, can't identify as a Native American. You know, or you, and I forget her name off the top of my head, but the, the white woman who... Um, identified as black and was a member of the 
in AACP, you know, like leading one of their chapters, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, Dozel, I think her last name was. Well, why can't they do that? Why can't I identify as a senior citizen in order to get the discount on the cup of coffee? You see, they're inconsistent in their worldview. There's no consistency there at all, but yet still they don't come from an idea of absolute objective morality. It's just we want to do whatever we want to do and we want to promote these ideas that we want to promote and we want and what's becoming so very clear it is absolutely clear now if it wasn't clear before they don't want you and I to be free even to voice our opinion they want to shut us up by law they want to shut us up and shut us down they don't believe in tolerance live and let live no they do not They say you celebrate our perversions and views or we will shut you down. Well, what godly people are going to do is speak louder. And we're going to stand firmer. But we're going to stand on truth. God's truth. We're going to stand on reality. We're going to stand in love. Because for us not to stand is unloving. It is to give people a pat on the back, on the back, which is actually a push into hell. And we can't do that. We must not do that. So those big picture principles, they they ultimately don't believe in the depravity of man and that the problem with humanity is sin. They don't call people predominantly to personal responsibility for their own choices or actions, but they promote victimhood and blame shifting. And they don't believe in absolute truth or morality. So what do you have? You have an ungodly worldview. And what do you have when those people get into politics and they're on the legislature, legislative bodies? They legislate according to their unbiblical worldview. Do you expect them to pass godly laws if their whole worldview is diametrically opposed to the word of God? Now, what what we've done for a period of time in the United States of America, we've we've fallen into two different ditches, all right? Every road has at least two two ditches. One ditch in history that we have fallen into as Christians is to just say, oh, hands off, it's a secular government, so we're not going to have any say or input in it whatsoever. And then when things start getting progressively worse and worse, then we start complaining about it. Well, if we've not spoken up, if we've not taken a stand for truth, if we've not made our voices heard through voting and other means, then we're going we're gonna to get whatever we get. So one has been a hand, kind of a hands-off approach. Well, Christians shouldn't be involved in politics. Christians shouldn't think about politics. Um, it's a secular nation, and so you can't expect them to legislate according to God's morality. And I'm like, oh, really? 
You can't expect them to pass laws that say thou shalt not murder. You can't expect them to pass laws that say thou shalt not steal. Okay, yes, now there's a certain area of the governance of the heart where the government has no jurisdiction. All right? So when it comes down to punishing people for coveting, the government has no business being involved in that. The government has no business trying to force people to believe in Jesus because faith cannot be coerced. But the government has a responsibility to legislate in such a way that every law passed is consistent with biblical principles. And not a single law that is passed is opposed to and opposed by the word of God. What does that mean? There should not be no-fault divorce laws in any nation. Because God says that there are only specific reasons in which it is righteous to divorce. And we should not pass laws that say people are permitted to do that. And that issue regarding marriage is an issue which has a profound effect on all of society because as the family goes, so goes the nation. And when you look at the correlation between crime and fatherlessness, it's massive. Now, are those children responsible for their actions? Yes, they are. But are those, are those men who fathered those babies and then left them Abandon them because they're stinking selfish brats. Are those men responsible before God? And will they face the judgment of God if they do not repent? Yes, they will. And does that have a profound effect upon a nation when that happens? Yes, it does. And so there is a vested interest in every government because another big print. Uh, big picture principle. Look over at First Peter in chapter two. Another big picture principle regarding government and what government is supposed to do according to the scripture. Government is supposed to punish evildoers and praise and reward those that do good. Now, who defines good and evil? God does. So it has to be based on God's standards. First Peter chapter two, starting with verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Notice government is supposed to punish evildoers and praise those who do good. Government is supposed to craft laws that make it difficult for evil people to prosper in society. And they're supposed to craft laws that make it easier for the righteous to prosper in society. That's a a big picture principle regarding the purpose of government. So as you examine individual laws, you can ask yourself, is this law promoting making it making it easier for the righteous to live in peace and to prosper? 
Or is this law in any way, shape, or form rewarding evil behavior? And if it's rewarding evil behavior, it's an ungodly law and it needs to be changed. And so, tying in with the issue of illegal immigration that I touched on last week, if there are laws which reward people for doing that which is illegal, and we noted from the scriptures, is ungodly, namely entering a nation illegally and then living as thieves because they benefit from the governmental resources and other things as a nation. So they're, so they're lawbreakers and that they break the laws of the land. They're thieves and how they're living. And if laws are passed to make it easier for them to live as lawbreakers, that is in violation of this big picture principle of government. Government does not exist to make it easy for those who live sinfully. So, big picture principles. On the left, you have relativism. They don't believe in absolute truth. They don't believe in the inherent depravity of humankind. They believe everybody's good at heart. And so you just craft the environment and you'll get good results. And as a result, then they will use government to pass laws, which will end up promoting evil doing. And so it's an entire worldview, which is corrupt from the ground up. And it's not one that we should buy into. One of the things that is done so often, and I really encourage you to think about this carefully, to study it out, and to look for it. And I've mentioned it before, and that is correlation compared to cause to effect. The issue of poverty. When you look at areas that are very poor, there is more crime in those areas. And so then what happens? Some people on the people on the left will look at that and say, see, poverty causes crime. Poverty causes crime. But just because you have a correlation, does that mean that that's the cause? No, it's not. No, it's not. The cause of crime is the sinfulness of human beings and them making sinful choices. Now, they might be in a situation where they have more temptation and more pressure on them to make a sinful choice. If somebody's starving to death, they're going to be more pressured to steal than somebody who is not. But can people that have billions of dollars still steal? Yes, they can and they do. So you don't just hand people money and they're not going to be thieves anymore. It doesn't work that way. So we have to look at the realities of cause to effect. Now, I want to look at for a few moments that question that I first introduced to us, the question of who is responsible to provide for the poor. The first thing that I want to do is I... 
begin this is you won't have time to turn to all these, but I want to read from a list of scriptures that show us that as God's people, we ought to have hearts of compassion for those that are less fortunate than us. The Bible is filled with the reality that we should care for those who are materially and physically suffering. And we have to start with a place from a place of compassion. So consider passages such as Exodus 22:22, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Exodus 23 verse 6, do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Leviticus 19:15, do not pervert justice, do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. Leviticus 25, verse 25, and then 35 and 39. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and sells some of his property, his nearest relative is to come and redeem what the countryman has sold. They're to be supported. They're to be cared for if they hit hard times. Deuteronomy 10, verse 18. He, God, defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the girl the resident alien in the land, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 15, 7, if there's a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. In James, if we move over to the New Testament. James one twenty seven, religion that is acceptable before God our Father and is pure is this, that we're to look after the widows and the orphans in their distress and we're to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. In the book of 1 John, I don't have the exact reference, it's in chapter 3, it says, if someone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? If we look to 1 Corinthians, now turn to this one for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. There is a dynamite power motivation given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 to be Generous to a fault, to be generous with our material means. Second Corinthians chapter eight. I'm sorry, I'm getting the right Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter eight. The apostle here is encouraging those at Corinth. To fulfill their pledge, they had pledged to give money to the poor and they weren't following up on that. So he's encouraging them to fulfill their pledge. And he says this in verse eight, second Corinthians eight, eight. I speak not by commandment, but I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. So he had given them an example of some 
some people who had done very well in this. And he said, I'm testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. And then this principle in verse 9, this is powerful. If this penetrates into our hearts, then our hands will be open. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. You see, we who have been had our eyes open to our depravity, our plight, that we were divine criminals under capital sentences of eternal death from God, the just judge of the universe, but that God, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, walking according to the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, walking after Satan and his ways, but God, who is rich in mercy. You see, when we get this in the depth of our souls that Jesus Christ gave up his divine perks and privileges for a time, he came down from heaven where he had myriads of heavenly beings crying out, holy, holy, holy and worthy is the lamb every single second of every single day. And he came down and he walked in the dust of this earth and he was spat upon and he was despised and he was rejected and he went to the cross and he faced the wrath of the father and he bore the penalty that we deserve and he rose from the dead and he gives us new life and he gives us an inheritance in the new heavens and earth. He gives us joy and peace in this life because we have the power and strength of the Holy Spirit through the work of Jesus Christ to be able to endure temptations When we get this at the depth of our hearts, then we will not be stingy with money and food when we have extra money and food. We will give and we will give with open hearts. Brother Rick read for us about a woman who was forgiven much. And what did Jesus say? That the one who is forgiven much will be grateful beyond measure and will be forgiving. Every single one of us has been given forgiven more than we can even imagine. Right? I... I talk to my guys at the jail and I use this illustration all the time and hopefully it sinks in. I I ask them this and I'll ask you all this. How many times have you sinned in your life? If you think about that every single thought that is ever wrong and against the will of God is a sin. If you think about every single action, if you think about everything that you should have done and you didn't do, how many times have you sinned? A thousand, two thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, a hundred thousand? How many times? Now think about this. The wages of sin is death. How many sins do you have to sin to be eternally condemned and get a capital sentence in God's court? One. One. How many capital sentences do you have over your head? 
Think about this even in a, a righteous judicial system in a nation. If somebody comes in and they're a first-time offender, and it's a little lesser crime, let's say that it's a nonviolent crime of some kind, and they're a first-time offender, you know what? The judges are going to be lenient. They're going to take that into consideration. What if it's the 25th time that somebody's come before him for the same type of crime? They're going to see that guy coming and say, here he comes, lock him up. He hasn't learned his lesson. Now think about this. What if, what if you have someone that crafts a weapon of mass destruction and with intent, with malice, they plant that weapon and they blow up and take the lives of 200,000 people. That guy has to die. Now think about you. Capital sentence for every sin that we ever commit. We probably sinned a couple hundred thousand times in our lives. That's what we deserve. But if we have faith in Jesus because of the power of Jesus Christ and because of that price that he bore, because he had no capital sentence hanging over his head, he went to the cross. He righteously bore that. Our faith is in him. We have been forgiven that. And you see, when we get that, we give. And there's nothing more to it. When we get that, we are generous because we know that we have something also that nobody can ever take from us. Not only have we been forgiven of our sins, but we've been adopted into the family of God. Not only have we been forgiven of our sins, we are called beloved children of God. And we are given peace. We are given hope. We are given life. We are to be giving people. And the scriptures are clear about this. But now let's ask ourselves, because as we look at the scriptures, God outlines specific directions for specific people or groups of people. Now let's ask ourselves a question. Whose responsibility is it at the broad level to provide for the poor? I hope we've established that we as individuals need to have a concern for those who are poor and we should seek to be involved in providing for the poor. But as we do this, we need to define our terms because who is the poor? Who is the poor? If you look up the definition of poverty that's used in the United States of America, you know what you're going to see? you are going to see that it says poverty in the United States of America is defined by people living under the standard which is considered acceptable in the nation. So the poverty level, when the United States of America says if, if an individual is, is 
earning under $12,000 a year, they're under the poverty line. Or if a family with two adults and three children is making less than $23,000 a year, they're under the poverty line. That poverty line is relative. That poverty line in the United States of America is saying, when you compare these people to the rest of the nation, we consider this to be the level at which they are not flourishing as much as other people, and it's harder for them if they go below this level. Okay? So for the United States of America, poverty line, again, for an individual is going to be just under $12,000, which is $1,000 a month. But if you go to any of the nations in sub-Sahara Africa, and you look at the median income, so this is the income right in the middle when you average it all out, there are nations in sub-Sahara Africa where the median income median income for the whole nation is less than $1,000 a year. Less than $1,000 a year. The United States says you're in poverty if you're making less than $1,000 a month. But then also in the United States of America, for those that are living below the poverty line, the average individual is receiving approximately $9,000 a year in governmental welfare. So that means you, you take that up, that's $20,000 a year. Consider this as we consider the whole world. Over 50% of the world lives on less than $2.50 a day. What can you buy with $2.50? The cheapest Starbucks coffee that they've got? Can you get Can you get a cup of just plain old perked coffee for $2.50 at Starbucks? Maybe. <laughs> less than, or um, over 50% of the world, just around 50%, less, live on less than $2.50 a day. 80% of the world lives on $10 a day. That's all that they get, $10 a day, 80% of the world. When, when, I, when I hear those numbers, one, my heart goes out to those in sub-Sahara Africa. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's poverty. That is, and, and I have compassion. That is horrific circumstances to live in. Children with swollen bellies because they are malnourished. Stick thin legs and arms and swollen bellies because they don't have enough food. But it also makes me just cringe when I hear people on the progressive left say that in the United States of America, amongst our residents, we tolerate obscene levels of poverty. I say, you are out of touch with reality. You are out of touch. Because here's the reality. In the United States of America, we have a safety net that is giving... Listen to this. If you, if you include all that is part of the welfare programs, there's 79 designated programs at the federal level. If you include everything at the federal level and you include everything that's at the state level, we are spending approximately $1 trillion 
every year in welfare for those who are more needy than others in the United States of America, but the majority of them still are within the top 20% of the wealthiest people in the entire world. Those are just the facts. Those are just the raw numbers. Okay? So we've got to think through these issues carefully and not just be swayed into voting in people who are going to hand out more money just because they say that we have these horrific poverty levels in the United States of America. Now, are there people in the United States of America who are genuinely going through hard times financially at times? Yes, there are. Absolutely so. I don't mean to say otherwise. In particular, in particular, think of the children. Think of the children. Because there, there are children... And then they can't, they can't go out and get a job. They're not old enough. Let's say young children, they're not old enough to go out and get a job. So they can't do anything about their condition. They're dependent upon their parents. And if their parents are not providing for them, then they suffer. And so there are children in the United States of America that are going hungry. But you know what? The vast majority of those children are going hungry because their parents are wicked. They're wicked. It's because they've got a biological father out there somewhere who doesn't give a rip about them and who impregnated a woman and then abandoned her. And because they've got a mom who's strung out on dope and spends all of her money on dope rather than getting food for the kids and she doesn't have the wherewithal or you know the resources therefore to see that her kids are being provided for these are sin issues they're sin issues okay and hey i work with addicts my heart goes out to people that get caught in substance abuse but the reality is this god says you choose to do dope and that's sin And you can't blame anybody or anything for that. Okay? So we want to help people break that cycle and get out of that, but the only way they're going to get out of that righteously is to take responsibility for themselves and put faith in God and do what God calls them to do. Okay? And they can't blame other people or anybody else. They've got to do what God calls them to do. And there's hope in that. There's hope in that. So we have to speak truth and we have to speak God's truth and we have to look at these things biblically. I want to ask I want to ask the question as we're talking broadly here about the issue of whose responsibility is it? I I believe as I look at the scriptures that there's a balanced approach to this issue. There's a balanced approach. I've I've heard things on a couple different sides.
trying to find some particular notes I had here on my phone, so give me just a second. Everybody take a deep breath. I've heard, I've heard some people on the right say this. It's the responsibility of the church to take care of the poor. And because the church has failed to take care of the poor, the government has stepped in with all her, of her welfare programs. And if the church would just do what God has called her to do, then this would all be resolved. I don't agree. I don't agree. Here's why. I'm talking about the church as in local assemblies. What Acts chapter 14 calls a church when it says that the apostles went through and they appointed plural elders in each of the churches singular. Okay, I'm talking about what the Bible says is a church, a local assembly of believers. A church which is organized around the preaching and teaching of the word, around the ordinances, the Lord's table and baptism that comes together to pray, that comes together to sing and worship the Lord and that looks after those who attend there and ministers to them in day in and day out life. Are those churches, local churches, ever tasked in Scripture with caring for the poor, as in everyone in their entire community and everyone in their entire nation? I do not find one passage of Scripture. And think about this. This is the sufficient word of God. Right here. God has given us many instructions as churches in this word. We're approaching the scriptures from the perspective of if there is something that is central to our mission as an organized local church, then God has told us right here. But not only can you not find a commandment, you can't even find an example in the scriptures of a local church being tasked with providing for the poor in their community. Here's what you see over and over again. Local churches providing for the needs of the poor believers, the saints. That's what you see. That's what you see. Look over at the book of Acts. And when the the issue of uh, the widows and the providing for the widows in Acts chapter 6. It says, now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily Distribution. But what is this? This is all within the church.
Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen and these other men. But see, these were the widows within the church. Look back in Acts for just a moment. Let me uh, let me find my exact verse here. I'm I'm looking for if you if you find it uh, first. I didn't have this one written down. It's where it talks about them having all things in, in common. 432. 432, thank you. I was looking right at it, had the page open, and uh, it's one of those I'm scanning right past it. I remember the general area was. Notice it says here in Acts 432, now the multitude of those who, who believed, notice this, it's believers were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. Notice this again. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. For whom are they providing? For believers and for those who are in their midst. This verse has been used to promote the idea of socialism at the governmental level. This is at the level of the church, local churches, and people voluntarily giving to those who are in need in their churches. And it does not undermine private property either, even though it said they sold what they had Because in chapter 5, when you see Ananias and Sapphira, Peter tells them after they sell their land and give half of it and lie and say that they gave all of it, when when you had it, wasn't it in your power to do whatever you wanted with? The issue was that they wanted to take credit for giving everything when they only gave half. And God struck them dead for it. Okay, But to my point, notice here, this distribution, it's amongst believers. Look over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. When it gives specific instructions about who the church is to support financially who has been widowed. Okay, so the context here is that the church would take on full financial support for certain individuals. And there are qualifications that are listed here in regard to who can receive this support. Chapter 5, verse 3, honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Stop there for a minute. If there's a widow who has family, who has the responsibility before God ultimately to provide for that widow? The church? The government? No, the family. The family. So one of the qualifications to receive full-time support for food and clothing and shelter from the church, 
for a widow is that she doesn't have any family to provide for her. She doesn't have any children who can provide, for instance. Now, she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. She also has to be a believer and a devout believer to receive this support. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, and these things command that they be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he's denied the faith faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. See, in the biblical order of provision, if you have a responsibility toward those in your household, it is not the church's responsibility. It is not the government's responsibility. It is your responsibility to provide. Fathers, it is not the government's responsibility to provide for your children. That's yours. Husbands, it is not anyone else's responsibility to see that your wife is provided for. That is your responsibility. Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number. There's another qualification. It has to be over 60 years old to receive this full financial support of being taken into the number. And not, not unless, and then it gives some character qualities, she's been the wife of one man. She's been sexually pure and faithful and has a, a history of being faithful. Well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, if she's had children and brought them up well, if she has lodged strangers, washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work, but refused the younger widows, for when they become to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry, having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. You see, being taken into the number involved a pledge or commitment to the church. And it's saying the younger ones are not often faithful, so they're not to be included in this. But you see, you see the point. And, and again, what I'm what I'm saying here is not only do you never see instructions from God Almighty given to the local churches that they have a responsibility to provide for the poor outside of the true the church and the true church. Never do you see that by example. And you have these opposite statements which say that we are to provide for the needs of believers. So it's commonly said, well, the, the church has a responsibility to provide for the poor in the nation and the government should stay out of it. And if the church has only done it, then you wouldn't have these issues. Now, think about this for just a minute. Anybody remember the number I said that the the overall amount of welfare from the government is approximately in the United States of America annually? One trillion. You know how much is estimated that every religious organization, doesn't matter what they are, whether they're Scientologists or whoever they are, you know what the number of money that it's estimated that is received annually when you combine every religious institution in the United States of America? It's 91 billion with a B. Every penny that ever comes in. So if you take just the true churches, how many, what percentage of all religious organizations are true churches? I mean, if you just conservatively said something like 10% are true churches, that's $10 billion with a B. 
What is that? A hundred times less than a trillion? That means Christians, to support at the same level the entire nation that's being supported right now, would have to give approximately 99 times more than is being given right now, and then they would have no money to keep their electricity on, have a building, pay their pastors, anything. <laughs> now, I, th- I think probably our government is giving out too much support. And in some areas, it is clear that that's the case. Because if you have somebody that can be irresponsible and yet constantly get government funds while living a life of wickedness, then that's got to stop. Somehow that's got to stop. But as soon as conservatives propose ideas like you've got to do drug testing in order to get food food, uh, stamps, used to be called, the left rises up in arms and says this is discrimination and it's evil and everything else. And I'm kind of like, well, you know what? If, if you are living in sin and refusing to fight against that sin, you're probably not going to a church because if you're a member of a church and you're struggling, your church should come around you and be helping you out, <laughs> helping you through this, right? If you're living committing crime because it's against the law to do this you're living in sin because it's against god's law we shouldn't be giving you free stuff shouldn't happen and when people are enabled to continue in sin it is not good for them And hunger can be a pretty powerful motivator. Look over at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, which Brother Dan read for us. God knew this. And he said it directly. Hunger is a powerful motivator. And if somebody won't step up and take responsibility for themselves, do not feed them. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, the apostle gives himself and other apostles as an example. They they didn't have to work outside of the ministry. The scriptures are clear about that in multiple passages. But they chose to do it anyway to be a good example as they would go in and plant a church. If you've got a church planner and he goes in and the first thing he he opens up and says, the first series we're going to do from the scriptures is why you have to pay me the minister. That doesn't set a very good example, does it? You're kind of like, ah, this guy's just after the money. And I've seen, I've seen that. I saw a pastor come into a church and he did, started demanding higher salary than he agreed to. And he started preaching that before you pay the bills and everything else, you owe your pastor. And he blew that church up from the inside out. And it no longer exists. It was horrible. Well, but then the apostle says this in verse 11. We hear, or no, no, I need to jump back. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. (laughs) If you have an able-bodied person who is capable of providing for themselves and, and is in the category of someone who is required by God to provide for themselves, and they refuse to do so, they are not to be helped financially or materially. Because hunger is a powerful motivator. For we hear there are some among, who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. 
Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ, full authority of Jesus Christ, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. They got to provide for themselves. This is specifically directed to the church, but I see in it a principle that applies to government. How could how could anybody rightly say that, oh, this only applies to the church where if somebody's being lazy and irresponsible, they're supposed to work and provide for themselves and not be given to by the church. But at the government level, if they're going to be lazy and irresponsible and not provide and be a drag on society, then you should go ahead and feed them. You see, no general principle here that applies across the board. This has become a two-part series. We're going to finish this next week. (laughs) And everybody heaves a sigh of relief. (laughs) But take these things with you. Again, we looked at some broad principles We are to be generous as individuals in the body of Christ. We have been given much. If you see your neighbor who is even an unbeliever and they are hungry, feed them, (laughs) feed them. But as we look to the scriptures and we look at the organized local churches. And ask the question, are we responsible for before God to feed those outside of the body of Christ, the answer is we do not see by example and we see places where instructions are given that would preclude us in some instances from doing so. That we are not required by God to take funds given in the offering plate and set up massive charitable organizations to provide for the needs of those outside of our number. But when we see believers in our midst who are needy, we say, if you've got a roof over your, or if I've got a roof over my head, you will have a roof over your head. If I have transportation, you will have transportation. If I have food, you will have food. We are going to look after our own. And God wants us to do that so that others look on and they say, I wish I could be a part of that. Because look how they love one another. Jesus said that, right? You shall be known by your love for one another. And so as individuals, it's appropriate. Jesus says, use mammon to make friends. If they're already your friend, then it's not likely that you're going to have to use that money If they're a believer, then in one sense, they're already your friend or they should be your friend. So that is talking about being willing to give even to unbelievers so that your generosity encourages them with the love of Christ. But at the organized local church level, we are called, first of all, to look after our own. And encourage people to come in and join us in this endeavor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had in your word today. We pray that you will bless these things to our hearts and our minds.
We ask, Father, that you will bless the meal that we partake of together. Thank you for your provision for us. We are truly wealthy. Every one of us in this room, when we look at nations around the world, we have been blessed beyond even what we know, I think. So we thank you for that, and we ask that you would help us to be truly generous. In Jesus' name, amen.